Grace and peace to you all, and welcome to the Calvary Road with Pastor Sam Allen. They're wondering how could he eat with tax collectors and sinners? Well, okay, tax collectors, I get, but, but sinners, listen, the answer to this is oh so simple. I've shared it in the past. If he didn't eat with sinners, he would have to dine alone because all have sinned and come short of the glory of God. All are sinners. There are none righteous, no, not one. So important to see it. In part two of his message, Forgiven, we are finishing up Mark chapter two. Looking at Jesus' encounter with Levi, or as we know him, Matthew, we also see that Jesus' authority is beginning to be questioned later on in the chapter. Today, we begin in Mark two, starting in verse 14. As he passed by, he saw Levi, son of Alphaeus, verse 14, sitting at the tax office, and he said to him, follow me. So he arose and followed Kim. Two quick things. Andrew, when John the Baptist pointed him to Jesus saying, behold the Lamb of God, immediately went and got his brother Peter and says, we found him who is called the Messiah, the Christ. And later Jesus calls Peter and Andrew, follow me and I'll make you fishers of men. Same thing happened with Philip and Nathaniel. Philip finds Jesus or Jesus finds Philip, brings Nathanael to him. Levi, unlike them, he doesn't bring a brother or bring a friend. He has a party and he invites everyone he knows. How do we know? Because the crowd will be full of, and he'll use the, the phrase three times, tax collectors and sinners. If you'd never read the Bible, you might conclude there were two different kinds of people. There's the tax collectors and then there's the sinners. Actually, tax collectors are set apart because they're on a higher tier of sinner. But uh, nevertheless, we'll see that in a moment. But uh, there, there's two things I wanted to share. Oh, and I shared one. So here's the other one. Andrew, Peter, James and John, all fishermen. Jesus said, follow me and I'll make you fishers of men. And immediately they followed him. I mentioned back then they left all to follow him. That's true, but not in the same way that it's true for Levi. Why? Because they could always go back to fishing. And after the crucifixion and even after the resurrection, uh, you know, they have a little fishing excursion. Perhaps they did that from time to time. But we know they were still capable of fishing. Once Levi walks away from the tax tables, that door is closed forever. And so he has nowhere to go back. He's burned his bridges. So in the, the purest sense of the word, when he left all, he really did leave all to follow Jesus. It happened, verse 15, as he was dining in Levi's house. Many tax collectors and sinners also sat together with Jesus and his disciples for there were many and they followed him. And when the scribes and Pharisees saw him eating with the tax collectors and sinners, they said to his disciples, how is it he eats and drinks with tax collectors and sinners? Now, tax collectors, they would have been just below lepers on the do not invite to dinner list. You know, lepers, because people were afraid of them, they were unclean, so you'd be defiled just to be in their presence. But tax collectors, because they were hated and despised. Why? Because in that day, the way tax collectors made 
the majority of their money is they would do it by taking advantage of people. See, Rome didn't care how much you collected. They just told you what they wanted. And anything you could get between what they demanded and what you could, you could get, well, you're, that's yours. So tax collectors were notorious for starting poor and ending up rich. Sort of like our politicians today. A uh, lot of grifters in politics. And, and if you're in politics, my apology to you. You're probably a totally honest person, but you may not be. And, uh, and if not, repent and, and, you know, do the right thing. By the way, I don't want to discourage any Christian from going into politics. It's not something I'd ever want to do. But I have this calling. But, but I do think Christians should be represented throughout our community and, and in every area of life. And, and, and so even though I joke about politicians, well, you know, there's always some truth behind humor. And there are a lot of people. I can think of a former president and his wife from the South. And they, they, they had nothing when they started and they're multimillionaires now. Now I'm like, how does that happen? Because I thought a politician was a servant of the people who elected them. But I don't think they got that memo up there in Congress. So anyway, we move on. They're wondering, how could he eat with tax collectors and sinners? Well, okay, tax collectors, I get. But, but sinners, listen, the answer to this is oh so simple. I've shared it in the past. If he didn't eat with sinners, he would have to dine alone. Because all have sinned and come short of the glory of God. All are sinners. There are none righteous. No, not one. So important to see it. And so he's going to, to clarify this himself in just a moment. Well, again, Jesus came to seek and to save the lost. The atheist, the agnostic, the religious person, they are all in need of Jesus' forgiveness. He's not like, you're, you, you're, you don't even believe in God. Well, they need to repent of that. You don't know if you can believe in God. It's interesting, and you should know this. Theist, well, theos, that's, that's a, a, you know, God. So theist is someone who believes in God. Whenever you put the letter A before anything in Greek, I think it's true in Latin too, for sure in Greek, uh, it, it negates the next. So, so if you, a theist is someone who believes in God, an atheist doesn't believe in God. A Gnostic is someone with knowledge. An agnostic is someone without knowledge. So while I think the second position is, well, it's saner than the first, because the first is saying there's absolutely no God. No way they can prove that. But nevertheless, there are people who are proud to be atheists and, and, and God, not me, God says that, that the one who says there is no God is a fool. The fool is said in his heart, there is no God. But an agnostic is just saying, I really don't know. And, and that's an honest position. But why would you want to listen to someone who doesn't claim to know? I mean, the Bible's so clear. If people just read it, they would know. So we have atheists, we have agnostics, we have religious people. And listen, the religious need Jesus just as much as the others. The saddest part, they don't always know it. And that was the case with these um, who were having trouble that he would lower himself to eat with people they would have never broken bread with. Well, when Jesus heard it, he said to them, those who are well have no need of a physician, 
but those who are sick. I did not come to call the righteous, but sinners to repentance. Note first, he's not equating the two. He's not calling sin a sickness. He's just using the obvious to explain what had eluded them. The one who's well doesn't need to go to the doctor. The one who's sick does in the same way. Well, the one who's righteous doesn't need a savior. But the one who's a sinner does. Now, if you're a student of scripture, you're probably already aware the Old and the New Testament both declared there are none righteous, no, not one. So he didn't come to call the righteous, he says. Well, of course he didn't, because there aren't any righteous until he imparts his righteousness to us. He came to call sinners because all of sin and come short of the glory of God, because the wages of sin is death. Every sinner dead in trespasses and sin, and there is life only in him. His gift to any and all who put their faith in him. Well, our chapter concludes with two conflicts. The first is very minor. It regards fasting. And the second is major. It regards the Sabbath. We'll touch on both. And I have one more time allowing short um, story of a tax collector. It comes from Luke's gospel. And I'll do my best to get through this so we can get to and conclude with that. The disciples of John, verse 18, and of the Pharisees, were fasting. They came and said to him, why did the disciples of John and the Pharisees fast, but your disciples do not fast? Now, Jesus' answer sounds a bit like a riddle. It sounds like he's avoiding the question, not answering it. But know this, fasting was only required among the Jews one day a year. It was on the Day of Atonement. But lots of Jews fasted twice a week. It sounds like a greater sacrifice than it is. And here's why it wasn't. They fasted from 9 a.m. to 6 p.m. I can't tell you how many times I've eaten before 9, skipped lunch, and had dinner after 6. That's not a fast. That's just a regular day at work. But nevertheless, they prided themselves on being super spiritual because I fast. I fast twice a week, some will say. So they didn't have to fast. But they were fasting. Jesus warned not to fast or pray or give or do anything else to be seen by men. Some were fasting as a spiritual discipline. That's always a good thing. If you skip lunch to spend an hour reading your Bible and praying, man, that's a spiritual discipline. That's something if you're doing that as unto the Lord to please him and glorify him, then you're doing well. But if you're doing it so people will notice you, that's exactly what Jesus warned against. For some, it was a spiritual discipline. For others, it was just a hypocritical show. So this whole area of fasting, it was something, well, it's still a benefit to those who do it. It's not just physically healthy. It is spiritually and can be at least spiritually uh, encouraging. And, uh, and so you know, something worth considering. Well, he answers the question in sort of a roundabout way, and he reveals himself in some extraordinary ways in the process. Jesus said to them, verse 19, can the friends of the bridegroom fast while the bridegroom is with them? As long as they have the bridegroom with them, they cannot fast. 
in those days. But the day the days will come when the bridegroom will be taken away from them. Then they will fast in those days. Listen, they're the friends of the bridegroom. He's the bridegroom. Years ago, I did a concert as a young believer. I played music for a living. So when I came to the Lord, I used to do Christian concerts. And I, I did some music for a guy in Norwalk in the ballroom up there, uh, Southern Cal, kind of a rough area, mostly bikers and stuff in, in, the, in the place. And, and, uh, and, you know, we did kind of a, a grooving, you know, music set and, and songs about Jesus. But, you know. They, they were they were as, as hip as things could be in that day, whatever that means. And uh, but anyway, the guy got up to speak and he taught on how the church is the bride of Christ. You have to picture that a whole group of bikers. And he's saying, you're going to be the bride of Christ if you come to Jesus. And I'm like, I'm watching the body language and they're like, ain't going to be nobody's bride, buddy, you know. I was waiting for them to attack and, you know, charge the stage. But, but here's the thing. It's a concept that's better understood in this context than in an evangelistic outreach. And so I don't know if you ever put that together. I would have been, you know, told them, but, you know, I was the young Christian. But I learned from it. I was like, man, I'm, if I ever get a chance to do that, I will not tell them about that. Well, here I can tell you. You are the bride of Christ. It's a spiritual reality. He doesn't know any way to, to get us closer to the nature of the relationship he desires than husband and wife. So, so he likens himself to the bridegroom. He calls himself the bridegroom. The church is the bride of Christ. Those who were with him, if you will, they were, well, the friends of the bridegroom. And he says the day will come when they fast. When would that be? Well, I think they probably fasted from the moment he was arrested in the garden to, to, to the time they saw him alive after the resurrection. I, I can't imagine they had any appetite. But, but that wasn't a forced fast. That would have been the fast from a broken heart and, 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 a, and a broken spirit. Nevertheless, he gives us a second illustration. No one sews a piece of unshrunk cloth on an old garment or else the new piece pulls away from the old and the tear is made worse. No one puts new wine into old wineskins or else the new wine bursts the wineskins. The wine is spilled and the wineskins are ruined. Well, listen, uh, uh, patching clothes, we don't do as much of that today. But in those days, people didn't have, you know, closets full of clothes and they couldn't just go down to the store or go online and order more. So, so when something tore, they would patch it. And he's just saying, you never take a patch that hasn't been washed and pre-shrunk and put it on clothing that has a tear because when you do wash that garment, then the, that, that part's gonna, it's gonna shrink. And as it does, it's gonna make the tear worse. It's just a simple illustration. But what in the world is it supposed to mean? Well, you connect it with the wineskins and, and, and it'll all come together later in the story, but I'll share it with you in a moment. As far as wineskins, they didn't bottle wine. That's how it's commonly done today. They literally use skins. And uh, if you had a new wine skin, it was very supple. It could expand, you know, that the, the, the juice within, it began to ferment. And as it fermented, gases come off. And, and so the, the thing could expand. But if you put new wine in an old wine skin, it would just burst the wine skin. You'd wreck the wine skin and you'd lose the wine. Well, the old garment and the wine skins 
will turn out to be the dispensation of law that was quickly passing away. Now, that's not obvious here, but it will become obvious as we continue through our study of Mark. Those, the law and the prophets were unto John. They fulfilled their purpose. They were pointing to Jesus. And the new wine in the age of grace, the wine of the spirit, not the law, because the law kills, the spirit gives life. He says, you can't put that, that, that new wine in old wineskins. Well, it, it makes total sense. They're hardened. They're hard-hearted. They're, they're not interested. And so not just the law, but those who tried to live by the law, who thought they were keepers of the law. So it's not limited to the law, the Sadducees, the Pharisees, the scribes, and those who followed them. They were all hardened, or many of them were hardened to the new wine of the Spirit and the work in, of God in the age of grace. Well, Mark skillfully weaves Jesus' words into another issue a blessing from God that had been made a burden by men. And this will not be the last time we touch on this subject. It's just an introduction. In fact, our very next chapter, we'll get back into the same issue. So he touches on the Sabbath. It's a major issue in Scripture. It's mentioned 135 times, 11 times of them in Mark. So it says, he said to them, oh, now it happened as he went through the grain fields, almost skipped that, that would have been confusing. Verse 23, he went through the grain fields on the Sabbath, and as they went, his disciples began to pluck the heads of grain. The Pharisees said to him, look, why do they do what is not lawful on the Sabbath? Listen, God's law said, don't work on the Sabbath, keep it holy, set it apart. God gave the Sabbath so men wouldn't work seven days a week because he knows two kinds of men, those who work seven days a week and those who don't work at all. As a lesson for the don't work at all, guys, but the seven days a week, guy, he's saying, hey, you have to have a day of rest. It's a day of rest. It's a day of fellowship with your family. It's a day where you sit and you dwell on the goodness of God and talk about his mercies to you. So the Sabbath was made for man. It was created after man was created, by the way, and he's going to touch on that. So God's law, pretty simple. Don't work on the Sabbath. Keep it holy. The Jews came up with 39 categories of what it meant to work on the Sabbath. And, and then under each one, there were all these little subheadings. So that they end up with this massive volume of ways you could break the law. So pretty much anything you did on the Sabbath would have been breaking the law. So they came up with every conceivable and inconceivable way to break the law. His disciples, by the way, were doing something called gleaning. It was provided for the poor in the scriptures. And by the way, when you leave all to follow Jim, follow Jim, yeah, you're really going to be poor because Jim's got nothing. Now, when you leave all to follow Jesus, I don't know how that happens. There's not even, oh, Jesus and him. Oh, very good. Thanks. That's right. Jesus and him, Jim. Just we'll say Jim from now on and save some syllables. Um, but anyway, when you forsake all to follow him, that leaves you without a way to support yourself. So they're gleaning. 
And as they pass through the, the cornfields, all they're doing is they're plucking heads of corn and they're like shucking heads of corn and they're pulling that stuff off and rubbing it between their hands. And then they're eating the corn. It's that simple. It's not really breaking the law. But here's how they saw it. The Pharisees didn't see disciples gleaning. They saw sinners reaping, winnowing, threshing, and preparing a meal. They found them guilty of breaking four laws, not God's laws, the laws of men. These crazy fabricated ideas that made sinners out of people that had been forgiven that were walking with Jesus, that were living for Jesus, that were representing Jesus. Well, anyway, he says to them, and it's a little bit of a dig, have you not read? Because they prided themselves on reading all the time. I think these guys might have been great readers with poor comprehension because they never really understand what they're reading. Have you never read what David did when he was in need and hungry? And those with him, he went into the house of God in the days of Abiathar, the priest, the high priest, and ate the showbread, which is not lawful to eat, except for the priest, and also gave some to those who were with him. He said to them, the Sabbath was made for man and not man for the Sabbath. I already mentioned 135 references, so it is a huge issue. But this is the core of it, because here's how Jesus is defining its purpose. It was made for man. God didn't make man so there'd be someone to obey the Sabbath law. He made the Sabbath law so man would have a day of rest and reflection and fellowship with him. Jesus says the Sabbath was not made for man, but the man but not, or the Sabbath was made for man, but not man for the Sabbath. Therefore... The Son of Man is also Lord of the Sabbath. The Bridegroom, the Son of Man, the Lord of all. Well, listen, next time we'll see a healing on the Sabbath and we'll dig back into that. But I got to read it to you. It's very short. Already made mention of the fact that, uh, you know, not very many rich people would have gone into tax collecting because why make yourself more unpopular unnecessarily? But, but it wasn't unusual for a tax collector to become very rich in the process of collecting taxes. In Luke 19.1, and I'll just read it to you. Don't need to comment on it. You'll get it. Jesus entered passing through Jericho. There was a man named Zacchaeus who was a chief tax collector, and he was rich. He sought to see who Jesus was, but could not because of the crowd, for he was of short stature. So he ran ahead, climbed a sycamore tree to see him. For he was going to pass that way. And when Jesus came to the place, he looked up and saw him and said to him, Zacchaeus, make haste, come down for today. I must stay at your house. He invites himself to dinner. He invites himself over. He's a friend of sinners. Friends do that. So he made haste and came down. He received him joyfully. And when they saw it, they all complained, they being the same religious type leaders. He's gone to be a guest with a man who is a sinner. Then Zacchaeus stood and said to the Lord, Look, Lord, I give half my goods to the poor. If I've taken anything from anyone by false accusation, I restore fourfold. I can see his friend's eyes rolling. I mean, if I've ever taken anything by false accusation, I restore fourfold. 
That's what the law said to do, by the way. And Jesus said to him, today salvation has come to this house. He is also a son of Abraham, for the Son of Man has come to seek and to save that which was lost. When we think about the Sabbath, there are some that question whether or not Christians are obligated to keep it. Well, in my belief, that's completely up to you because we're not under that law. And I only have one thought on the issue, but it is important. Keeping the Sabbath can be a tremendous blessing. And if you choose to keep the Sabbath, I believe it is more than just a day off. The rest that we all need so much is found in Christ. It's not about keeping a lot of rules and regulations as the Israelites did. It's about spending time with the Lord and allowing Him to regenerate you. The Calvary Road is a ministry of Calvary Chapel Chico, and you can visit our website, ccchico.com, or download the CC Chico app to contact us and listen to other studies from Pastor Sam. You can also listen to The Calvary Road as a daily podcast by visiting thecalvaryroad.com. We'd love to hear from you. And until next time, may you find grace and peace as your journey takes you down the Calvary Road. And your grace.